1: Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Diana, and we are welcoming a guest who I'm thrilled to have join us today, Ellen Perry, who is the founder and principal of Wealth Partners. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you so much for coming on today.
2: Oh, my goodness. It's so lovely to be here with you both. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, we are excited to get right into the conversation. And just for the audience's perspective, Ellen has worked for a long time with families of substantial wealth. She has a lot of experience helping families, helping institutions like wealth management firms. Most recently, she's been a senior advisor to Brown Brothers Harriman. And she really helps people think about the intersection between families and wealth. So right Germaine to the topic of our podcast. And I'm gonna open up with a question. Really related to your experience, you know, we know you've worked with a lot of families over the course of three decades. One of the questions that I think we receive a lot is, "What is a family meeting, and why do families even have them?"
2: Mm, that's such a good question, and I would say it's really timely. More and more families are calling me and calling others like me to ask about organizing family meetings. I think it's uh, it's gotten to be more popular recently, and and so. The way that I like to think about it when people are asking about organizing them is be really clear about what the purpose of the family meeting is, right? So don't just have a meeting to have a meeting. Have a meeting because there's some outcome that you're looking for. And as I think about it, and as I work with my clients around it, I think there's a handful of reasons to have a family meeting. So, you know, one might be information sharing, right? There's some information that the parents or the grandparents or the organizers have, perhaps the trust company or the investment firm, there's some information that they have that they want to share with the family, and they want to share that in a group setting. So that would be the first meeting purpose. The second might be, we want input. We want to have a family meeting because we're thinking about making a decision and we'd like to know what you all think about this. So we're going to get everyone together. Another reason might be, uh, we, we need a decision to be made, and you're a decision maker. So we're going to put everybody around the table. We're going to lay out all of the issues and the data or the facts or the information, and then we're going to take a vote. Right. So we're going to make a decision together. And the last reason I would say uh, is that the family is looking for enhanced relationships. They want to have a family meeting because we want to get closer to each other, Um, relationally or we want to enhance our communication or trust and so we're gonna get together and maybe they wrap that around some sort of family vacation or or gathering or retreat and so I think the most important thing for families to think about on the front end is what's our objective why do we want to have a family meeting Um, and then then I think a lot of other pieces that we can talk about fall from that
0: that makes perfect sense Ellen Um, thank you for joining us today. So when you think of a family meeting, your perspective is very different from mine in the behavioral health field because when I think of a family meeting, by and large, I'm thinking about an effort to support or potentially interfere with destructive behavior. So that would dictate for me who we would have in a family meeting based on who is willing to be supportive and healthy. In your realm, who do you, how inclusive are you? When you think of a family meeting, how inclusive do you want to be?
2: Mm, that's such a, a good question, Diana. So I, the way I think about it is who should be in the meeting is driven by two things. The first is the purpose of the meeting, as I just said. Maybe it is supporting a family member who's having some real challenges right now, or maybe it's around a decision that needs to be made, or maybe it's around just enhancing the trust and communication in the family. But the first, the first thing I always think about is what's the purpose of the meeting? Um, and then the second thing is what's the family's philosophy on inclusion? And those two things sort of tell me who should be in the meeting. So if a family has, as an example, a philosophy that spouses who marry into the family ought to be sitting around whatever table, around whatever conversations, then they would be included. Um, Other families who think, you know, sort of multi-generationally around trusts or around different things often have a narrower view, right? Just it's a need-to-know kind of um, family meeting, so that would limit. Um, I think if we want to talk about behavioral health or Uh, mental health issues, then I think who is around the table has a lot to do with the underlying relationships in the family. And uh, can I just keep going a little bit on this one for a minute? Please. So, you know, I came at this work from an investment standpoint. I was on Wall Street. I formed a multi-client family office, and we had 35 families as clients. And I didn't even think about the family part of family, right, the relational part of families, until I was sitting around tables with multiple generations of families trying to make some decision together, asset allocation or estate planning, and I realized that what was getting in the way of their making really good decisions together was not the facts. It was the relationships around the table that would get in the way of good decision making. So, I looked around for how I was going to get smart about this, and I went back and ended up doing a three-year post-grad in something called family systems theory, which is the theory of family, right? The psychological theory of family, the underlying psychology of it. And what I learned was so transformative for me, right? What I learned was that your family of origin is the most intense set of emotional relationships that you're ever going to have in your life. Meaning, in, in my language, you'll have your own language on this, my language on this is, I am more emotionally reactive to my siblings and parents than I'm likely going to to anybody else. It doesn't mean I love them more. It just means I'm more reactive to them, right? And so when you're working with families or I'm working with families, I have to be really aware of that relational complexity when we're trying to do business together or trying to be supportive of a family member together. I have to really understand that and factor it in, right? A- around my dinner table growing up, my mother who was pretty introverted, could control the behavior of her children at the dinner table by raising an eyebrow, right? She didn't have to say a word. That's emotional reactivity, right? If I'm so acutely aware of her mood and her feelings and her opinions or her judgment by, the, my, by just the raising of her eyebrow, then mm-hmm. that has an impact right, on what we might do sitting around a table together. That reactivity is powerful
0: and the personality differences when reactivity. How do we express that reactivity? Some people turn into people-pleasing people, some people get angry for one simple raised eyebrow.
1: Yeah, it's so true, it's so true. Well, we're gonna try and make these questions a little harder, Ellen, and I think you're up to the task. If you, can you think of a time when you've walked into a situation and you knew that the family meeting was going to be tense and how did you approach that type of meeting? Yeah, well, oh,
2: that's such a good question, Arden. So um, I, so maybe, maybe this is gonna say more about me, but I always think family meetings are gonna be tense because you've got all these members of one family sitting together. And so there's, there's going to be some anxiety around the table. right? And so my rule of thumb as someone who facilitates family meetings is I never walk into a family meeting without having first spoken one-on-one with everyone who's going to be sitting around that table or in that room. It's just too risky. Um, and, and I've had many experiences with this where, uh, you know, the person, the family member who's organizing it says, oh, yeah, everybody's great. It's going to be really easy. We're just going to, you know, go over X or Y. And you get in and you realize that, the f- that there's so much underlying upset in the room that the, the chances of getting to, to the objective – Are very low Um, and so I always make sure I never go into a room to facilitate a family meeting where I have not spoken one-on-one with every person who's coming in to say tell me what's on your mind for this meeting tell me what you think is success is going to look like tell me what you think might get in the way of success and then my last question I always ask everyone before the family meeting is what else would you want to know if you were sitting in my shoes And so I try to gather as much information so I'm not surprised um, by what happens. So I also think, probably like you guys, you know, my job is to make sure I never get a family into a place I can't get them out of emotionally. And so I need to understand the complexity of the family and of the moment in the life of the family before I walk into that room.
1: Can I ask a follow-up question to that? I'm, I'm thinking about if, you're brought on by the patriarch or the matriarch and they have, you know, let's say six kids, so a large family. You know, what happens if there's some agreement amongst a certain segment of the family about the work that needs to be done, but to your point, you know, you've got somebody dragging their heels around the process and they just don't have an interest in connecting with you prior to the meeting. How how do you deal with that?
2: That's a really good question. Often there is, a lack of congruence around the purpose of the meeting, right? So the patriarch or the matriarch might say, I want to get everyone together for X or Y, but that's actually not what's up for everyone else. And so um, if they refuse to talk to me before the meeting, I can't do anything about that. I haven't had it happen a lot, um, honestly, just because I think that if there is underlying tension in a family, they're really happy for someone to be coming in from the outside. And they'd really like for them to know what's on their mind. So I haven't run in a lot to people refusing to talk to me, but then still showing up for the meeting. I've had people refuse to talk to me and then not come to the meeting.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but if they're going to be in the room, they tend to, they, they do want to be heard. Which I that think makes- is a kind of a goal of all of ours in our family, right? We want to be heard.
0: Yeah. It depends on the, how the reception is,
2: <laughs> right?
0: Right. That's true. <laughs> so... How do you measure success? I mean, I would imagine that if you have the goals laid out ahead of time and you meet those goals, that's one measure of success. But there's got to be, when you're dealing with family dynamics and underlying issues, how else do you measure success?
2: So before I answer that, let me say something else about the, um, how I think about the complexity of a meeting, which is... Um, And if I forget to get back to it, make make me come back. But um, And it it sort of, I think, Arden speaks to something you said about the complexity of these meetings. Um, I think a lot about how do I match the complexity of the moment in the life of the family with the family meeting objectives. So as an example, I facilitated a family meeting a number of years ago for an entrepreneur who had just sold his business out of the blue for an enormous amount of money. He had also just gotten divorced and just remarried. All of that happened in a six-month period of time. And he wanted to have a family meeting with his adult children, which I thought was a terrible idea, actually, <laughs> because I felt like there was just too much intensity in the life of the family, right? And so, the more intensity there is in the moment in the family, the smaller the agenda is for me, right? So. I would never have sort of a two day, nine to five family meeting on the heels of a lot of transition or a lot of tension or stress uh, in a family. So the more sort of um, emotional and, um, and transitional stress there is in a system, the smaller the agenda. right? So we had a two hour meeting as a family meeting. It was their first family meeting. Um, trying again. There's like an inverse. If it's a time in the life of the family where there's not a lot going on and things are kind of going along, then I think you can have a bigger agenda uh, that goes on longer and tackles harder things. But I don't tackle really big things in an already difficult moment. Does that make sense?
0: I love that rule of the thumb. The more reactive, the simpler the agenda That makes perfect sense.
2: Well, and let me just, you know, be really honest. I came to that by having done the opposite, which is, oh my gosh, this is a really big moment in the life of the family. We have to pack the agenda. Mm -hmm. And I would look at these people sitting around the table and they were exhausted and not thinking well, you know, by the the end of the day. I, I, you know, I just, I was was wrong-minded about it. And so I, I came to this philosophy after having made a lot of mistakes on it. So success, um, again, yes, go back to the goals. So if the goal, as an example, is something easy, like we want to share information, you know, you can, you can uh, poll the family members at the end of the meeting to see if they understood the information that was shared, right? That's pretty easy. If it's a more qualitative judge of success or measure of success, um, around we want to enhance our relationships with each other. We want more trust. We want more emotional intimacy. We want better communication. And then I think those are a little harder to get to. Sometimes I look for signs of those things as a measure of success of a meeting. And you can't always measure it uh, you know, in the short term. You've got to be able to see it over time, right? One of, one of my theories is we can't get too far down in the weeds to be able to see anything accurately in a family. We've got to sort of get pull up, pull the lens up and out to be able to see trends better. So, as an example, if I'm working with a family and some number of family members, you know, would come to meetings and not speak or would be on their phones the whole time or would cancel the night before the meeting, like I'm looking for that kind of behavior to change. Are they engaged? Are they paying attention? Do they show up? Do they speak? Um... If I'm working with a family where they want to, again, we'll, we'll just use enhance their trust and communication with each other. If they're starting to figure out how to have some difficult conversations with each other, where in the past they would just bite their tongues, if they're starting to learn by, you know, how to speak up with, with a diverse opinion or challenge a decision that's being made in ways that are respectful, right? That would be what I would think about as success. Um, but often I'm working with the family themselves to think about how are we going to, what are the benchmarks here? How do we decide if this is
1: successful? I have a feeling I know the answer to this question, but I'm curious in, you know, in your family meetings, have you seen behavioral health or other mental health challenges come up and how do you navigate those situations? Yes, I have. You do know the answer to this <laughs> and you and I have worked together. I um,
2: yeah, you know, I do think mental health and behavioral health issues come forward, right? F- families are complex. Um, whether you have financial resources or not, you know, your family of origin, as I said, is is so intense and people are easily triggered in families. And so um, I think that understanding those going in is, is just essential. And also naming them, I think there's great power towards what i call sh- you know shining the light into the shadowy corners in a family i think for many of us we think our our family is the only family that has these issues i don't think that we necessarily understand whether it's mental health or behavioral health or substance abuse or you know challenges of all you know kind of all of the challenges that come with being a human being I think we think we're the only family that has those or the only person who does. And and so understanding how um, how typical that is and normalizing it for families can be incredibly helpful. Can be incredibly helpful because I think we tend to hide those things that we think are only ours, right? We feel the shame mm-hmm. of them and so we don't share them. Mm. So part of what I think I do is just normalize them like right? working with a family well of course you have these things you know you are all human beings and yes right. it's all this we, we come with this wide flavor of of being human so normalizing i think is really helpful do you use statistics do you actually speak in terms of numbers hmm, you mean as in when your engaged- of family members have this sort of challenge
0: I'm, I'm yeah, sure if you were that. if you were working with a family to normalize, let's say, substance use disorders, do you come to the fore with, you know, roughly 10% of the population struggles with these? It wouldn't surprise me that, you know, members of your family are struggling as well. Do
1: you
2: use I don't. That? No, Diana, yeah. I usually don't use statistics like that. But what I do say is... You know, I've been doing this for 30 years. I've worked with dozens and dozens of families who have this same challenge. Got it. And so, um, and I'll, you know, I love storytelling. So, I'll tell stories, obviously not attributable to the family. (laughs) But, you know, sort of, here's here's what happened, right? We had a second generation son who was really struggling with this. And this is how it was approached in the family. And this is the resources that we brought to bear. And... You know, these, this is sort of where they are now in the journey. I, I do think that, that putting it in a context of a journey, so many of the families that I work with and that, that we just know in our lives um, feels such a sense of pressure for perfection that mm-hmm. I think that very fact gets in the way of them being able to talk about and then therefore work on some of these really big challenges.
0: The darker corners, as you explained. The dark corners, yeah. Right. Um, Given your career and that 30-year span of working with many families, and I'm sure you've been what some people would imagine the fly on the wall in all kinds of systems and seen them evolve, what stands out for you as a memorable experience with family, and why?
2: Mm, That's such a good question. I have so many. I I really feel so privileged to have been taught by these families, right? Small families, you know, three, four-person families and 150-person families. It's just been a great privilege to be able to see families. I think the difference in my work from... um, say, a family therapist, which I'm not, is that I see the whole system. And so I'm sitting in the room with the whole system, which is really unusual, right? To be able to see all the different members, and and I think in systems terms, right? So I think about families as a system in which one member of the family, one component of the system shifts, and everybody shifts in adaptation, right? So someone marries and someone new enters the system, or someone dies and leaves, or is born into it, or someone falls off the tracks. Like, everybody just sort of has to, changes. And, And that's just been the most incredible opportunity for me to learn and to see um, the, the whole of a, of a family over a long period of time. And so I think maybe those are the most memorable are the long engagements, because some of them are quite short, right? Sometimes they just work with a family for six months or eight months. But I've had the privilege of working with some for 15 years to, to watch a generation grow up, to, to watch you know, powerful entrepreneurs age and figure out how to be a leader in the, in the eighth phase of life or the later phase of life, depending on whose work you're looking at. Whose and work so, you're working on. Yeah, right. exactly. And so I, I've really loved the, the arc of a family and, and being able to be a part of it.
0: I would also imagine, and I don't mean to sound too sappy, that you have seen amazing acts of love in really difficult situations.
2: I have. I have. Uh, Extraordinary acts of love, both internally, right towards t- turned towards the family, and also turned towards society, or towards others. And so, uh, a lot of the families that I work with have been. Uh, well, so let me just say. So part of my theory of wealth and and my particular practice is focused on families who've had enterprise together or who have a family enter- enterprise or business now. And so part of my belief system is that wealth is really just a magnifier. It's really just a accelerator accentuator, right? It takes what's going on in a, in a person or in a family and it just magnifies it. And so kind people can be kinder, right? Generous people have the means to be extraordinarily generous. And I've, I've had the opportunity to see some of that and, and s- then see the impact of that generosity. And so that's, be, that's been really great. And, you know, I think societally, sometimes we have, uh, we see in the press, we see this opinion that wealthy families are really selfish and they're self-absorbed and they're, you know, sucking all of the resources. And you know, w- whether that's true or not, what I've also gotten to see is that they're they are extraordinarily, in, in my practice, extraordinarily generous.
1: It's so good to end, uh, you know, our podcast on that note because I think you're absolutely right that, and, and we have one last question for you. But I think, as we're talking more about families and and all the complex issues that that are present for every family, but I think highlighted by families of extraordinary means because the issues seem so much more um, intense in many ways. I think um, I think it's also nice to just hear that the positives of being, you know, somebody who is of service to these families over the long term, because I think, yeah, you nailed it when you said that, you know, the public perception and or the sort of average person, I think, mostly due to TV shows. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan right. of the series Succession, but I think it, it hasn't necessarily increased the. Um, the sympathy or the empathy that people have towards wealthy families and the issues that are present. Um, so it's nice to, it's a great to hear just sort of the, your view on just how wonderful it can be to be, you know, a witness to families and, and to see change over time. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end the podcast with a question around your career. And, and did you have a mentor and what did you learn from, from them?
2: Such a great question. I have been really blessed by having a handful of mentors in my life, um, and and I think about mentoring uh, and and went looking for mentors earlier on. So my first mentor was a man named John O'Neill in San Francisco who ran the Jungian Center there, and um, and he helped me think about what I bring into a family meeting or into a family setting, which I just assumed I came in neutral <laughs> all the time, right? I had I had been trained, I just came in neutrally. And he helped me see that we don't, and we have to be so mindful of, of you know the things that we can't see in ourselves as we as we enter these complex systems. And that was so helpful. Um, and then I have two mentors, Kathy Wiseman and Frederz-Brown, who've both been so generous with me over the span of my career around helping me understand family systems more and pointing me in Direction of that I got trained, and also just being such great thought partners with me around families, they've they're incredibly generous. Um, and lastly, I, I I can't be in this work without um, having learned so much from Jay Hughes, who's mm-hmm. who I was just with for the last two days in Colorado. Um, thinking through a particular family that I'm working with that I I really benefited from his. You know, he's got much more experience than I do and a very wonderful perspective. I've been so lucky. I've had mentors in lots of different parts of my life from my work to my personal life. I've really benefited tremendously from
1: that. Well, that's wonderful. I think all of us benefit from learning from the mistakes. As you said, I think some of the best mistakes we've learned from at OPG and if we change the way in which we alter our practice or deliver services, Um, It can be painful lessons, but ones that also teach us a lot about better ways to serve families and I always say the easiest way to learn is to find other people who've come before you and really (laughs) crafted um, a practice and really have best practices that that you don't have to kind of endure those painful lessons yourself so I I am a big believer and have benefited also from um, various mentors throughout my career, which I feel very blessed to have had. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us today I think it was Uh, a really thoughtful discussion and one that I think is going to be helpful to many of our listeners. We really appreciate your time and your wisdom.
2: Oh my goodness. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be in conversation with you both.
1: Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on another episode of beyond the balance sheet podcast. If you're inclined to do so, please give us a positive review on your podcast platform of choice. And we hope you'll join us in our next episode.
0: Thank you for listening to beyond the balance sheet a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit BeyondTheBalanceSheet.com to read more about our guests and resources, and sign up for our newsletter.